Practically everybody's heard the story of Jonah and the whale, or giant fish. But many view it as a simplistic moral tale or a child's fable. Yet if you look just a bit further, there's a lot more to explore. Coming up, we'll uh, cast off for an adventure that we're calling Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale. Plus, you'll hear all the latest news from the Middle East, get some answers to some puzzling Bible questions, and more. This is The Land and the Book with Old Testament scholar Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and we begin today with a question. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week, of course, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. Uh, That's right, John. And that's why Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people, and it will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Well, as you hear today's conversation about Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale, you're going to wish you had a copy of the book. Well, Deb Frey has already won one. Last week, we pitched it out there, and this is the email that she shared with us. She says, I always recommend your program to my friends and relatives and pastors because it is the most authentic source of information on current events in the Middle East with the latest medical innovations from Amazing Israel, as well as informative interviews with writers or archaeologists or biblical scholars followed by questions from listeners about Scripture and answers from Charlie. This is truly an outstanding resource for any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves him and has a desire to learn more about the land where he grew up and where the prophets of old lived and where they ministered. I'm truly grateful for the land and the book. Deb, thank you for those kind words. Glad you're listening. In New Milford, Pennsylvania, going to send you a copy of Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale, our featured interview coming up. Well, let's take a look at current events. Charlie, uh, well, you said it was going to happen, and now it has. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid began the process of dissolving the Knesset this past week and called for new elections in the fall. Lapid will become interim Prime Minister until elections are held and a new government is formed. What was the event, though, that finally brought the government down, and what happens next? You know, John, we've said it over and over again. The biggest thing holding that coalition together was its mutual distrust of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But the event that finally brought it crashing down was the bill to continue extending Israeli sovereignty over the half million Jewish people living in the West Bank. The coalition was unable to pass the bill, and the current five-year extension is scheduled to expire at the end of June. By dissolving the Knesset, the law automatically remains on the books until a new government is formed. The two co-leaders decided it was better to end the coalition on their terms rather than having it dissolve through a no-confidence vote led by the opposition. Now, the process for unwinding the coalition is rather convoluted. Eleven bills to dissolve the Knesset, two by coalition partners and nine by opposition members, were presented for initial reading on Wednesday. All eleven passed. They all now head to a committee that will prepare them for the next vote. 
Now, for one of those motions to pass, it has to go through three additional votes in the Knesset, along with two committee reviews. So it's likely that the final vote will take place sometime this coming week. The opposition is trying to avoid an election and form a different ruling coalition of conservatives within the current government, but it's uncertain if they can make that move happen. If they can't, then Yair Lapid definitely becomes interim prime minister over a caretaker government. He'll be the one who will greet President Biden when he arrives in Israel in July. By law, elections must be held within five months. The likely date will be late October or early November. Early election polls suggest neither major faction has a clear pathway to a majority. Former Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party and its allies are expected to gather 59 or 60 seats, while the current bloc of coalition parties are projected to receive 54 or 55 seats. The remaining seats belong to the Arab joint list, which isn't willing to join a coalition with either of the main blocs. As a result, the campaign this summer promises to be a bruising affair as parties on each side try to attract voters. Now, a lot can happen, John, between now and the end of October. Well, you briefly mentioned President Biden's visit to Israel in just under three weeks. He begins his first presidential visit to the Middle East. In addition to Israel, where is he heading and what does he hope to accomplish on this trip? Well, in addition to Israel, President Biden will be visiting the Palestinian Authority and Saudi Arabia. Now, in terms of what he hopes to accomplish, uh, there seem to be multiple goals. One goal is to fly the American flag over an area that the administration has been accused of neglecting. A second is to get Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states to work more closely to promote regional peace and stability. Now, hidden behind that wording is a desire to help these countries work together to blunt Iran's ambitions in the region. Visiting Saudi Arabia and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is a reversal of sorts for President Biden, who in the past has been referring to Saudi Arabia as a pariah state. Now, the main reason for this change is likely the current state of the U.S. economy. Rising gas prices have brought frustration and anger to many in the U.S., and Saudi Arabia remains the world's largest producer of oil. President Biden would love to have this visit result in the Saudis opening the tap to export more oil and bring down the price at the pump. But it's unclear if the Saudis will be open to his pleas unless he has something specific to offer in return. Now, in Israel, President Biden will affirm U.S. support for the Jewish people, but he's also going to offer support to Palestinian President Abbas. Uh, Some think he'll even announce the reopening of the U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem. One thing's for sure. The two main topics on everybody's mind on this visit will be the Iranians and the price of gasoline in the United States. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, working our way through a list of current events that have been unfolding all week long. Story number three, Israeli natural gas might soon be on its way to Europe. What are the specifics on the agreement reached between Israel and the European Union to sell them natural gas? Well, the deal was signed between Israel, Egypt, and the European Union, and the agreement will send Israeli natural gas by pipeline to Egypt's liquid natural gas terminal, where it'll be liquefied and then transported to Europe by tanker. Europe receives about 40% of its natural gas from Russia, and Russia's conflict with Ukraine has highlighted the need in Europe to not be so dependent on Russia for its energy needs. 
The two pipelines connecting Israel and Egypt already are, are in existence, and there's talk of adding a third to increase capacity. Now, Israel currently produces 12 billion cubic meters of natural gas, and they plan to increase that to 21 billion cubic meters in the not-too-distant future. Israel's supply of natural gas will not totally replace Europe's shortfall from Russia, but it will be an important part of Europe's strategy to diversify supplies. However, these plans are not without opposition. Europe's committed to becoming less dependent on natural gas starting in 2030 and to become a zero-emission economic area by 2050. So some in Europe don't want this to become too much of a dependency on Israel. In addition, Israel needs to bring its third gas field online to supply the additional energy. But this field's the one claimed by Lebanon. The U.S. has been working to negotiate an agreement between Israel and Lebanon since both countries are still technically in a state of war. Hmm. Now, hopefully, all those details can be worked out so Israel can begin to supply some of the natural gas Europe needs, hopefully before the arrival of winter. Finally, from Gath to Bath, what's the latest news archaeologically that's coming out of Israel? Well, archaeologists excavating the site of Biblical Gath published an article on 4,500-year-old game boards and game pieces discovered there. The game boards appear to be a local adaptation of an ancient Egyptian game called Senate. It's a race game where two players use dice-like sticks to move their pieces around the game board. You can't push the analogy too far, but it's similar to the kids' game, Shoots and Ladders. Uh, The proliferation of game boards and game pieces suggests that, uh, just like today, the people in ancient Gath like to play games to pass the time. Uh, It also suggests that games, like other material products, pass from one civilization to another through trade and cultural interaction. Now, moving from Gath to Bath, or more precisely to the bath, a doctoral dissertation has proven that Herod the Great's alabaster bathtubs, discovered one near Jericho, the other at the Herodium south of Jerusalem, were produced from local alabaster in Judea rather than alabaster imported from Egypt, which had been earlier thought. The doctoral student analyzed the chemical breakdown of the stone and matched it to a quarry near the modern-day city of Beit Shemesh. Now, I've seen one of those bathtubs, John, and the quality of workmanship is amazing. Mm. We now know that both the workman and the alabaster were locally sourced, indicating a high quality of both raw materials and craftsmanship. It's one more tiny detail that helps us flesh out the portrait we have of Herod the Great, the king whose love of luxury was only exceeded by his cruelty. And that's a look at current events. Up next on The Land and the Book, Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale. We're going to dig in deep, maybe take a deep dive, if you will, next on The Land and the Book. His story is one of the most well-known in all of Scripture. But do we really know it as God intended us to know it? What do we overlook in the biblical account of Jonah? Unfortunately, some of us tend to see it as a, oh, a simplistic moral tale, maybe a fish story or a child's fable. But what if we took a different look at Jonah beyond the tale of a whale? Hey, get your sea legs. We're headed for a a seafaring adventure here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I've already taken my Dramamine, so I'm good to go. Hey, before we cast off, though, let's check in with this idea for making the real Jesus real to our Jewish friends. Opportunities to share Yeshua with your Jewish friends come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Beth Tablin's got a great story. She serves on staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Beth? 
one day I was talking on the phone with someone from technical support about my computer, and when he saw the name of our congregation, he started speaking to me in Hebrew. <laughs> well, I don't speak Hebrew, but I did take the opportunity to explain to him that we are a congregation of Jewish people who believe in Jesus, and he had not really explored that very much. And so we talked about it a little bit more. And because he was on the phone, I thought, well, I need to give him some resources. So I directed him to the website InSearchOfShalom.com, which is a website that has a lot of Jewish believers' testimonies mm. on video. And so you can direct Jewish people there, and they can go in the privacy of their own home and watch these videos of people who have powerful testimonies, and they're all Jewish believers. InSearchOfShalom.com. Yes. Great resource for somebody that's uh, maybe just with tech support on the phone. Thoughts there from Beth Tavlin, who's with Olive Tree Congregation, here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Mark Yarbrough serves as president and professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. As an author, speaker, and academic, his practical communication leads him to conferences and classrooms and churches throughout the United States and really around the world. Among other books, he's written Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Dr. Yarbrough. Honored to be with you today. What a wonderful book for us to get to chat about. You know, I think many of us trivialize or minimize the wickedness of Nineveh when we read the book of Jonah. Fill in some of the gaps for us, Mark. These were people to be feared, really feared, because what? Well, because their pattern of living was uh, something that was not just antithetical to what God had instructed of his people, but just in terms of their aggression. They were polytheistic. They were known for their brutality uh, in terms of conquering other nations, things that they did with just other human beings. It's just, it's grotesque. It's something that history records, not just in terms of the biblical text, but outside of the Bible, the information that we know about the Assyrians. It was just, uh, it was a brutal time in human history, and when any time any one country conquers another country, it's always ugly. And that's certainly what uh, we know about the Assyrian Empire. Okay, so Nineveh was a frightening assignment, but really running from God, as we sometimes describe Jonah's reaction, this seems almost less than juvenile. Or perhaps it was not so much running from God as it was Jonah running from an assignment that just terrified him. What's your take? Well, I agree with you. I mean, at first glimpse, because of what we know about the Assyrian Empire, we think that, you know, maybe Jonah was just afraid of what was going to happen to him in some dark Assyrian alley. And I actually kind of think that's what we're supposed to think. You know, he's running from this assignment that God gives him because of this big, giant, fearful people. And while that certainly must have been part of it, we find out that Jonah seems to be running for other reasons. And the more that we get into the text, the more we see how he is irrational in his moves and in his thinking, and believe it or not, even in his words. And so when we see that, we start to wonder, as good readers of the text or as listeners of this story, we think, oh, there's got to be something else going on here in the background. And sure enough, it is. Well, let's talk about the elephant, I mean the whale in the room, <laughs> to uh, swallow a human being without crunching every bone in his body that had to be a mighty big fish and a mighty disciplined fish. Your thoughts? Well, I agree with that. And obviously the text itself doesn't tell us exactly uh, that it is a whale. The text is pretty specific about saying a large fish. So this is a fish that uh, apparently God had created for this moment 
his use. And so, as I frequently say when I'm teaching this and as we're reading through it, if we can believe that God created all things, that he spoke the word and brought everything into existence, and certainly that uh, we can believe as believers that Jesus got up from the dead, clearly God has demonstrated that he is the God of miracles. So God built and designed a fish that was ready to hold, swallow, incarcerate, transport, and deliver (laughs) his prophet as he so choose. And so that's what we see in the text. It is a miracle of God, and God... uh, preserved his profit because he wasn't done with him. Now, I don't know whether you have bumped into this in your research for the book or other studies. You know, we hear stories, though, of others supposedly swallowed by large fish or whales and live to tell about it. Uh, Did you bump into any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of stories throughout history. There was one even just recently that was on the news of an individual that was uh, swallowed. And obviously, there's a difference between being uh, gulped for a moment versus, uh, you know, three days and the perspective and the presentation that we get of Jonah. I mean, this was swallowed and held for quite some time. And to be perfectly honest, even delivered. And so when God causes this fish to spit him up, he has now been delivered delivered. And so that's part of the use. It's miraculous no matter how you cut it. We're looking at the story of Jonah, as perhaps you've never seen it today on The Land and the Book, with our guest, Dr. Mark Yarbrough, president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, God ordered the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry ground. Now, a fish of that size would stay far from shore, it seems to me, uh, not to cross the line into a TMI, but that had to have been quite a vomit experience for the fish and for Jonah. How does the Hebrew text enlighten our understanding here? Well, I tell you what, it's an interesting word. Um, I frequently say when I get into this part of the book is that I actually did a word study on vomit. How about that? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I look at that word, and it's fascinating in the Hebrew text because this word is used extensively in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. And the Hebrew ear that heard it, they really knew what this word was. If you go back and look at it, like in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 through 30, it's used several times there. And it is used in the context of of what God was going to do with his people in the land if they were unfaithful. Mm. And so this word vomit is a word that is directly attached to unfaithfulness. And when they heard this word, of all the ways that God could have delivered <laughs> Jonah, right? I mean, and you look at the rest of the Bible and individuals were, you know, scooped up by the chariot and they just appear in one place and then another. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more. God clearly has done different things throughout history. Uh, he could have delivered his prophet, but he chose this word and instructed the fish to vomit him out. And I think it's because of really the unfaithfulness of Jonah's prayer that he has just delivered uh, while he was swallowed by the fish. Hmm. Of course, ultimately, Jonah does submit after being vomited, and he does speak God's warning of impending judgment, and to his shock, the people respond. They repent from the king on down. The imagery of Nineveh's residents in sackcloth and ashes, I think, is incredibly powerful. People in sorrow over sin. What does this scene say to wicked America, if anything? Well, I tell you what, the same things that we see, God always uh, responds to people's repentance, always. 
And, you know, what we see, the actions of the king of Nineveh, where he gets up, takes off his royal robe, covers himself with sackcloth, and sits in the dust. These four things that we see, right? It's a picture of seriousness, submission, repentance, and hopelessness. I think God longs for that from any culture that identifies and sees their sin and then turns to God for deliverance. That's what we saw in Nineveh. That's what God longed for in the nation of Israel. And that's still what God longs for us today as a nation, and that's certainly what God longs for us as individuals. Uh, He longs for us to uh, see the seriousness of our sin, to submit to Him, to repent of that, and then turn to Him for deliverance. And so that that little model that we see presented in the King of Nineveh is something that God still wants to see in every one of us today. Our guest today on The Land and the Book, Dr. Mark Yarbrough, president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale. Hey, what kept Jonah from rejoicing that the Ninevites had a change of heart? Why not just celebrate their apparent humility and repentance? Well, there is that issue that we talked about at the very beginning. Jonah wasn't just running from what he was afraid was going to happen to him, as difficult as that assignment was. There was another issue that was going on, and by the time we really get into chapter 4, that's really what we begin to see is that here's the other issue. Jonah hated the Ninevites. It's not just his fear of what was going to happen to him as he delivered this message from God. Jonah really didn't like these people. He didn't just not like them. He hated them. He despised them. And he knew who God was. And he knew that if they repented, that God would, I'm going to use that word in the text, relent. In other words, that God would not bring the judgment on them that he had said might happen if they did not repent. And Jonah didn't want them to repent Mm -hmm. because he wanted them to get the wrath of God. And how ironic is that? Jonah himself could receive the grace of God, but he couldn't rejoice when others received the grace of God. And that's what we see as we slide into chapter 4. Now, how much of this judge them and zap them Jonah mentality has infected the evangelical church today? We've got our bad guy list. Have we, have we leaned so hard on our preference for grace that this is a non-issue, or are we more hard-hearted than we know? I'm afraid that we're more hard-hearted than we know. Uh, you know, when you see certainly in just culture in general, there sometimes is a tone that even the church can use in us against them. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to constantly come back and realize that like, people are not the enemy. Uh, even when we see individuals that disagree with us, they're antithetical to the gospel, uh, they poke fun at our convictions that are driven from the text, right? When we see all of that is that it is not an us against them. People are never the enemy. Some people have been captured by the enemy, and I think we need to keep our framework on that particular model because a lot of times when we use that language of wanting to condemn others, it's not others that we are against. There is someone behind them. There is an evil one, and in that regard, that's the enemy. And so we need to see that this cultural conflict that we have of even others that disagree from our principles, from our presentation of biblical morality, our, again, convictions of the text, is that uh, they are not the enemy. And so I think when we use this us-them terminology, that's never, never, ever helpful. Jonah, beyond the tale of a whale. That's our focus today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our guest, Dr. Mark Yarbrough. You know, I often struggle, Mark. I I take a morning walk up and down my street almost every day, 
And I, I do a prayer walk weekly, and these aren't enemies, obviously, like Ninevites, but I am so rarely affected by the lostness of my neighbors. I'm not moved to emotion. Speak to my non-caring Jonah heart. What's wrong with me? Hmm. Well, number one, I think that... Um we can actually forget the grace that has been given us. Mm. And when we really look at what God has done to save our souls from hell, that we have been redeemed, that we have been purchased, that the more that we realize our own sin and see the grace that God has given us and the promise of eternal life, right? It's the totality of the gospel. It's not just the death, burial. It's the death, burial, and the resurrection. I, I use this phrase on a regular basis. Look, we're not just saved from something. We're saved for something. And uh, when Mark Yarbrough came to faith, I'm just shooting straight. I came to faith, uh, you know, for fire insurance, right? I was a, <laughs> I was a kid. And I was like, man, I heard about hell, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. Right. And I, I heard that Jesus has provided a way and paid the price for my sin. And I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and um, all I had to do was trust in Jesus of what he has done. But also, the older I get and the more I realize is that he has saved me for something. As long as he lives me here and I have breath that he calls me for a purpose today, and that is to represent him, listen to this, to those that do not know him. Those that don't have the gift of eternal life, like the gift of eternal life that by God's grace that we have been given. The more I focus on the grace that has been bestowed upon me, the more I should be convinced to be able to share it with others. What a gift. I mean, it's that great yes. verse that we all see behind the goalposts, you know, in John three sixteen, of the gift of eternal life by believing in the Son of God that has come and has paid the price for our sins. So I think that back to your question is that we need to preach and re-preach the gospel to ourselves daily because it's there that we remember what we have been given, and it's there that it should develop a burden for those that yet do not know Him. Wow, what a conversation this has been. Our time has truly gone too quickly. Dr. Mark Yarbrough, thank you for your thoughts on Jonah beyond the tale of a whale honored to be with you. It's a, it's a great story, and it certainly is beyond that tale. It presses us in all sorts of areas in our lives. Looking forward to sitting down with Charlie Dyer next with a fresh batch of questions here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for coming back. Segment three here on The Land and the Book, a favorite with many. Uh, I'm really intrigued with the questions that people ask. John Gaker's my name, by the way. Answering the questions, well, that's our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, the fearless Charlie Dyer. I got a question of my own, though, for you as you listen. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, but it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. That's why Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Never a shortage of email questions that uh, come into our inbox, so we'll dig right in. Let's 
starting with Elsie's, who says, please explain what all the prophesying is about in 1 Samuel 19, verses 19 through 23. What exactly is meant when it says Saul and the men he sent to capture David are prophesying? Yeah, I think the best explanation might be that the Holy Spirit forced these would-be captors to themselves become captive to God's direct control. Uh, They didn't necessarily prophesy in the sense of a, a true prophet like Elijah or Isaiah, but God compelled them to cease following the orders of the king of Israel and instead submit to the king of the universe. When Saul himself came, he was also forced to submit to God's power. Now, when it says he stripped off his clothes and prophesied, I think the point being made is that the human king of Israel was forced by God to take off his royal garments and prostrate himself in a prophetic trance to demonstrate to everyone that he was powerless before God, the real king of Israel. Saul and those he sent were compelled by God to act just as the prophets who delivered a message from God. But in this case, it's more that they were demonstrating God was in charge. Now, we don't know specifically what they said, but it's likely it was something to the effect that God compelled them to tell why they'd come, who'd sent them, and how they had come under his control. Uh, And it's really one of those uh, almost humorous parts of the Bible when you read what God had Mm. Saul do. Yeah. Sharon asks, when we ask God to bless us, does that mean he brings events that will produce joy, and thus we bend our knee in worship. I'm working on this word bless. I've learned it comes from the verb knee or kneel, but that doesn't seem to help me. What does it mean to bless God? I thought it meant to speak well of God. Thanks for putting this all together. Yeah, uh, the word for blessing uh, and bless might be related to the word for kneel, but that doesn't really help us understand the word. You know, the more than 400 times it's used in the Old Testament, it's translated as kneel only four of those times. But in the vast majority of its uses, the word has the idea of of someone greater extending good to someone lesser. Uh, Most of the time, it's God extending his blessing to humanity. But that still doesn't really help define what's meant. I I think personally, the best way to do that is to look at what blessing is contrasted with in the Bible. And Deuteronomy 28 is a great place to do that. The opposite of bless is curse. And in Hebrew, that word for curse in verse 15 has the idea of looking down on someone or esteeming them lightly. God uses another word for curse in verse 16. It has the idea of surrounding someone with obstacles and making them powerless to resist the results. Uh, The ultimate curse was the loss of prosperity and happiness and finally, physical life. And that can be seen in the curses of Deuteronomy 28. They included cannibalism followed by sickness and disease uh, leading to death and ultimately the complete destruction of the nation. So the opposite of that, bless, is the idea of, I think, looking with favor on someone in the sense of providing them with the power to succeed or prosper, while cursing was the idea of looking down or despising someone in a way that brought judgment. Now, one last thought. Most of the time, blessing is what comes from the greater to the lesser. That is, it's God who blesses his followers. But there are times when we're told to bless God. You know, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Uh, In those cases, the use of the word bless is more descriptive. Uh, We're not doing something that's providing a benefit to God. Instead, we're expressing thanks and praise to God for what he's already done for us. But here's the bottom line. When God blesses us, he's extending his favor to us. And when we bless God, we're thanking him for all he's done for us. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. And in this segment, we're addressing questions that have come in via email. Yours welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Linny takes us to Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 4, where the Moabites are said, even to the 10th generation, to be unable to enter the assembly of the Lord. Could they enter after the 10th generation? 
or was this just a turn of phrase used? I also wondered what exactly is meant by the assembly of the Lord. Would this be for males only? Well, I take the assembly of the Lord to be referring to those times when Israel was called as a nation to appear before God. In other words, the individuals uh, in this passage were excluded from the right to participate in the worship of Israel's God. The only other option would be that the passage is saying that they were to be banished from the land or physically killed, but that causes major problems since it would require the physical banishment or death of otherwise innocent babies born in illegitimate marriages. And though it was the men who were to appear before the Lord, God also allowed women to be there, as we see when Mary went with Joseph to the temple for Passover. Now, down to the 10th generation is symbolic, I think, of forever, since 10 was often a symbol of completeness. You know, there were 10 generations from Adam to the flood. God sent 10 plagues on Egypt. But 10 seems to be associated with that idea of ultimate. I also think the idea of forever is found in verse 6, where God tells Israel not to seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. And the phrase that's used there in Hebrew is all the days on to forever, using the Hebrew word olam. So here's the question then, how could Ruth enter into the covenant with Israel and how could David become king even though he was born less than 10 generations from Ruth, who was a Moabitess? And that's the key problem. And I think the answer is found in the vow Ruth takes in Ruth chapter one, where she says in part, your people will be my people and your God, my God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. In essence, Ruth denounced her Moabite heritage and voluntarily aligned herself with the God and people of Israel. And in his grace, God accepted her as a convert, Hmm. just like Rahab. So Ruth became part of the nation, and her offspring were also accepted as being part of Israel. Ava says, I was comparing various translations of Matthew 26, verse 50. It either says, friend, do what you came to do. This is Jesus speaking to Judas. Or friend, why have you come? Which is a better translation, and what is the meaning of the Greek phrase? Yeah, it's a great question, but it doesn't have a cut-and-dried answer. Uh, When Matthew uh, wrote that, it could be literally translated, for which you come. So translators need to supply the missing part of the sentence to have it make sense in English. And depending on what they add, the words can be taken as a statement, you know, either do that for which you came or I know that for which you came. Or the words can be taken as a question. What's the reason you've come? Now, either translation can make sense. Jesus obviously knew why Judas was coming since he'd already announced that one of the disciples would betray him. So if it's to be taken as a statement, which I personally think might be the best, then Jesus would in effect be saying directly to Judas, do what you came to do, or perhaps I know why you're here. But if it's taken as a question, then Jesus, already knowing the answer, would be asking Judas, why have you come? In either case, Jesus knew in advance Judas would be coming, and he also knew why. The bottom line is, in this case, the Greek can allow the phrase to be understood as either a question or a statement, and we need to decide which seems to fit best in the context. All right, let's move on to Silas's question. He says, most preachers recognize believing in the Lord Jesus Christ only as the passport to salvation. Paul and Silas even said this to the keeper of the prison in Acts 16.31. If baptism has no vital position in salvation, why would Jesus say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved in Mark 16, verse 16. Well, let me answer two ways. First, that verse in the Gospel of Mark is part of the ending to the Gospel that's disputed. That is, verses 9 to 20 in Mark 16 aren't found in some of the earliest manuscripts that were discovered. Those verses are also questioned by some early Christian writers, including Eusebius and Jerome. So the possibility is that Mark 16, 16 wasn't part of the original Gospel. 
But second, even if we assume the verse is to be included in the Bible, well, that doesn't make the verse a good proof text for the necessity of requiring baptism for salvation. As you noted, when the prison guard in Philippi asked Paul and Silas what he needed to do, he was told he only needed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John 3.16 says virtually the same thing. Uh, Whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And the thief on the cross who believed was told by Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise, even though he didn't follow his belief with baptism. So if baptism is an essential part of salvation, one could expect it to be included every place in the New Testament that explains what someone needs to do to be saved. Now, as someone has said, baptism isn't a requirement for salvation, but it was definitely presented as a response to salvation. And I think that's the way we ought to be looking at baptism, at least as it's presented in the Bible. And that's a great look at a great list of questions here on The Land and the Book. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I do. But there's more to come on the program. Charlie's devotional is straight ahead. I love the way he takes us to a passage in Scripture and a place in Israel, marries them together. It's next, right here. Thanks for joining us today on The Land of the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert and author, and has written extensively on Israel, including 30 Days in the Land with Jesus from Moody Publishers. Well, Charlie, I was uh, privileged with my wife to visit Florida just a couple of months ago, and it was so warm, unseasonably warm even then, that we stood in the uh, tide there with our feet in the waters, and you could feel the waves just working at our feet. And The sand was so washed away, I felt myself being drawn into the water. I suspect that might be something of an illustration for where you're headed on today's devotional. Uh, Indeed it is, John, and not just with the comparison to water, but that comparison of something pulling us along and how difficult it is to stand against those kind of pressures. We're going to head to Jeremiah chapter 13 in Charlie's devotional, but not before we take this quick listen to someone who's been to the Holy Land experience and shares what we call a Holy Land experience. As uh, I've studied the Bible after I've gotten back from Israel, the way that it changed the way I studied the Bible is that things came alive. I mean, you read about these stories like Gideon and you read about David and Goliath and you go to these places where this actually happened and you go to the temple steps where Jesus actually walked up those same steps, Garden of Gethsemane, places like that. It, it just comes alive. It takes on a, a much deeper meaning and it made me want to go back and read the scripture again and study that passage again. And while you're there, it's like, tell me again, as you have your guide, what's significant about this place? Some things you would know, but they would add a lot of insight into that. So it really makes the Bible come alive, makes you want to study the Bible more. It's like a dream come true. You can't believe that you're actually in the Holy Land, the place that you've read about all your life, and being able to see these places for your very own. It's just really no way to describe it, but it's such a spiritual experience. It's such a beautiful experience. I can remember being one of my favorite places was on the banks of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus in that region uh, taught the Sermon on the Mount and looking down at the Sea of Galilee and knowing that, and then being out on the Sea of Galilee in these ships that were replicas of the era in which Jesus lived. It's just magnificent. And looking back at the beautiful city of Tiberias while out on the Sea of Galilee. So places like that, you'll never forget. It's a trip of a lifetime, and I'd encourage anyone to go. 
Isn't it interesting to hear these testimonies week after week here on The Land and the Book? Well, Charlie, we mentioned Jeremiah 13 is where you're headed today in a devotional that you've titled Waistbands and Water. All right. Yeah. How many of you remember the original Candid Camera television show? I do. You know, the... <laughs> I, I the, it had Alan Funt using that hidden camera to capture ordinary people in unusual situations. Mm-hmm. My favorite episode involved an elevator and three candid camera staff. They waited for someone to enter the elevator, and then the staff members followed the person inside and faced the back of the elevator. <laughs> For some reason, we normally get on an elevator and everybody turns to face the front. Right. The idea behind it was to test the power of peer pressure in getting someone to conform. The episode's priceless as you watch each person wrestle with his rising level of discomfort at being the only one facing the front of the elevator. One by one, each individual looks at the others in the elevator and finally gives up and conforms to the unspoken expectations of the group. If you've never seen that video... Go to YouTube and and type in funny elevator psychology. I guarantee you'll be laughing by the end. Candid Camera used humor to show the powerful psychological need within us to conform. I can hear some saying, wait a minute, what about nonconformists? Look closely and you'll see that even so-called nonconformists have an unwritten code of conformity, a certain way to dress and a certain way to act that's expected. But what happens when God calls his followers to walk a different path, to conform not to the rest of the world, but to him? Frankly, it can make us feel as uncomfortable as someone standing in an elevator with everyone else facing the other direction. Just ask Jeremiah the prophet, the reluctant nonconformist. Jeremiah was the Charlie Brown of prophets, the ordinary guy who felt out of place in the spotlight. But he faithfully shared God's message with the nation. Trouble was, they didn't listen. In fact, they finally threatened to kill Jeremiah if he wouldn't quit. And that's when God had Jeremiah become the consummate nonconformist. Up till then, the focus had been on Jeremiah's message, but now God even wanted Jeremiah to make a statement in the very way he dressed. In Jeremiah 13, God commanded the prophet to buy a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. Jeremiah, get a new linen sash, but never wash it. I imagine it looked rather nice the first month or so, but eventually the dust kicked up from the roadways turned that linen sash to a grimy shade of brown. Yet Jeremiah refused to wash it. The stares and cruel comments had to wound his tender spirit. Hey, hippie, soap is cheap. Take a bath and clean your clothes. You smell. Finally, Jeremiah took a hike literally. Three miles from his hometown of Anatoth, in the bottom of a deep ravine, is a spring called Ein Parat, the spring of Parat. It's a funny name for a spring because it's the same Hebrew name as Euphrates. The spring of Parat was and is still a fairly substantial spring, but it's dwarfed by the river with the same name. As Jeremiah began his hike, he must have been followed by a group of locals walking along just for the entertainment value. After all, making fun of Jeremiah had become one of their regular pastimes. Maybe they could come home tonight with another new story about crazy Jeremiah. The hike down to the spring isn't easy. Those following Jeremiah must have wondered what had gotten into this strange man because when he reached the spring, he took off the linen sash. Maybe he's going to wash it one of them whispered. But instead, Jeremiah took the sash 
and stuffed it into a crack in the wet rocks, covering it with dirt. And then he turned around and started walking home. What a story we have to tell tonight. The man's nuts. Several months later, Jeremiah returned to the spring, no doubt accompanied by his entourage of mockers. He dug the linen waistband out of the rocks, but the dirt, rocks, and water had destroyed it. It might have been dirty before, but now it was ruined and completely useless. Someone in the crowd yelled out, Idiot, what'd you expect? And that's when Jeremiah explained the lesson of the waistband and water. The waistband represented the people of Judah, and Jeremiah had represented God. As long as the people clung to God, they were safe. But once they left God, they would be destroyed, and the destruction would come from Parat, the Euphrates. That's where Babylon was. Jeremiah's message hadn't changed, but this time God had him act out the message to drive home the point to an increasingly unresponsive audience. The message is all well and good, but put yourself in Jeremiah's place. How would you feel if God asked you to be the nonconformist, the one everyone else was making fun of? We know how Jeremiah felt, because just two chapters later he tells us, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention in all the land. I've neither lent nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. He goes on to say, I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? The emotional pain of being a nonconformist, tore at Jeremiah. Yet, to his credit, he never stopped following God. And his faithfulness should be a lesson to us all. We need to take a clear-eyed look at our own situation. The desire to conform is part of our DNA. The decision we need to make is what we're going to conform to. Do we choose to fit in with and be accepted by the society in which we live, Or do we choose to conform to the standards of the God we claim to follow? Jeremiah reminds us that the choice isn't easy, and the emotional pressure can be unrelenting. But he also demonstrates that an individual can choose to follow God rather than to conform to those external pressures. The Apostle Paul called on the followers of Jesus to make the same choice as Jeremiah. Paul said it this way in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I end today by asking this simple question. What waistband does God want you to wear for Him today? Thanks, Charlie. You know, you can hear today's program in its entirety online at thelandandthebook.org. We've got information on our guests, past programs, future programs, and everything you need to stay connected with us at thelandandthebook.org. Do check out the website, thelandandthebook.org. Well, our time is gone, but we do appreciate your choosing to spend some time with us here at The Land and the Book. Our team includes Dr. Charlie Dyer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger thanking you for listening and inviting you back next week for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.